0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 147 of the Thick Camp podcast. The title of today's interview is Authenticity, an interview with Michelle Genzano. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm
1: Matt Sabatello.
0: So Matt, we named this episode Authenticity because we have somebody who gave us an unvarnished view of our experience with chronic Lyme disease. And it's really important that we capture this type of view because this is the real Lyme and this is the way it feels. And we don't want anyone who's on a terrible journey to believe
1: that they're the only person that's having this type of experience with chronic Lyme disease. And Rich, Michelle was sick for years with classic Lyme disease symptoms before getting a proper diagnosis. Once diagnosed, she was also diagnosed with fibromyalgia, autoimmune conditions, and even a thyroid condition like many other Lyme patients. She even lost her job in health insurance because of her illness. Despite that, she found creative ways to continue to get care.
0: So Matt, the beauty of the story is that although Michelle had many challenges for many years, she's now starting to heal. And the healing process has allowed her to find love where she now has a significant other, and she's pivoted from a career as a teacher to a career as a digital marketer. So, Matt, I'm really excited to introduce authenticity to the Tick camp community. So, hey, Michelle, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Well, we're really blessed to have you on the podcast today, Michelle. And can you share with us where you live?
2: I live just outside of Philadelphia in, I guess, the southwest suburbs towards Valley Forge. A pressure area.
0: So, Michelle, we have to congratulate you. Your state, I think, had the highest number of Lyme disease cases last year. So, how does that make you feel that uh, Pennsylvania has um, now outpaced uh, New York and uh, Long Island's Lyme belt with uh, Lyme disease diagnoses?
2: Well, I guess that's something. (laughs) Um, Honestly, I am. Not in any way surprised with the amount of deer that we have roaming around, just even on the street, but it's certainly something that I think I was not, to be completely honest, I was not even entirely aware that that number had surpassed New York. And I will uh, probably be very promptly passing that along to my family and friends. Gives <laughs> us something that we need to be prepared for as the spring approaches.
0: So, Michelle, um, tell us about your, um, your, your childhood, where did you grow up, and what kinds of things were you pursuing during your childhood?
2: Well, I have lived in this area my entire life. I lived in the suburbs, close, not far from where I live now, and then moved into Philadelphia with my mom, where I was from. Third grade, all the way through the middle of high school, and then we moved back out to the area where I am now. Um, And then I went up to Penn State for my collegiate career. (laughs) Um, When I was younger, I very much wanted to be a teacher. I was told my, throughout my entire life, by just about everybody I encountered, that I should be a lawyer instead. So, I played I played dolls and teachers with my friends and when I went to school I went for communications thinking that I would end up in law school one day. <laughs> but um, it very quickly became obvious to me that my childhood calling was where my heart was and I switched Um, my major to elementary and kindergarten education after my first semester at Penn State. And life has gone on from there to me pursuing a master's in school counseling and working as a behavior specialist and school counselor with um, both public and private organizations and schools in my area.
0: So, Michelle, you're clearly a well-educated gal. And what I'm Interested in knowing is first, during your childhood, up until the time that you had gone to college, did you receive any training or information about ticks or Lyme disease?
2: The only experience that I had with Lyme disease up until my own health personal experience um, was that one of my younger cousins who live in New Jersey, one of them had got bitten by a tick. They were hunters. They lived in a house that backed up to the woods and we played in them all the time. And he ended up with a port um, to treat Lyme disease, which at the time, I think I was probably only nine or 10 years old, um, maybe even younger, but he was two or three. So it was really scary to see my little baby cousin with this and I knew it was from a tick bite. But that is about all that I ever experienced, heard, or knew. And then that we had to just look for ticks if we went camping or did something outdoors. And it pretty much stopped there. I never heard anything else in any capacity about Lyme disease, ticks, or anything even closely related.
0: Uh, So now let's talk about your your professional life. Um were there mm-hmm. did you ever study any curriculum or have any curriculum to pass on to your students where your students were taught about how to avoid getting bitten by ticks and what to do to avoid getting sick if they did in fact get bitten by a tick?
2: I wish that I could say yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, um again, other than the one experience that I had with a younger cousin, not even in my professional career did anybody ever mention ticks, Lyme disease, the need to look out for them despite the fact that I worked um, as a behavior specialist at day camp, or the fact that there are certainly playgrounds in different schools that I've worked in that backed up to woods. Um, and just as general knowledge, that certainly would be helpful to young students who are spending time playing outside, engaging in healthy activities where they could easily encounter a tick. It never came up in any capacity amongst just the professional adults or from um, educators to students, ever, not once.
0: So now, Michelle, you had this really scary experience with a baby cousin who was so sick that, um, that the treatment included um, a, a port. Did that cause you to alter your behavior in any way, or did that cause your family to alter its behavior in any way so that that wouldn't happen to any of you?
2: If I'm, oh gosh, if I'm being completely honest, I, I don't think that I noticed any change in my family's behavior. Um, in their immediate family, like in within their house, they may have done some things differently. That never translated over to me or to my house. Um, the only thing that I would say came from that, which it was scary to see, and to this day, I have this very, I guess, this very like unsettling feeling when I think about it. Um, I, I would say that the only impact I experienced was probably... That when my family when my family finally had a dog, and I was told that the dog had to have flea and tick medication, and occasionally the dog would have ticks um, that we would have to take off of the dog, that it made me feel extremely unsettled and uneasy, just knowing that there was a tick involved but again that came that came strictly from that experience because it was never talked about um in any other setting either as me as a student or me as an educator it never came up so only from that experience did I kind of develop this fear of ticks but I don't even know if I really knew that that was associated with Lyme disease until later adulthood (laughs)
0: So Michelle, you you pursue your childhood dream by graduating from one of America's top colleges and you now go on and become a teacher and a behavioral specialist. So talk to us about what your experiences were like after you graduated from college and you started your career.
2: Well, when I graduated with my degree um, as a teacher in elementary and kindergarten education, I admittedly quickly realized that I didn't want to be a classroom teacher. I felt that I had been going down the right path, but needed to kind of veer left a little bit. So I decided to pursue a master's of education in school counseling so that I would still be working within education, working with children, but I really wanted to focus on social and emotional development. Um, During my time earning my master's degree, I decided to... Leave some of the work I had been doing um, while I was applying for a master's, which was just typical corporate America type of work and pursue working with children right away. And that was the point at which I initially started as therapeutic staff support, uh, providing rehabilitative services within the home and community to students, children and to their families. And from there, I moved up and became a mobile therapist that would implement different treatment plans provided to me both at home, in schools, in the community. And then once I graduated with my master's degree, I became a behavior specialist. My degree at the time was intended for me to be a school counselor. That was what I really wanted to do, like a high school, like a guidance counselor for to use an older term. Um, but those jobs are very far and few between and difficult to come by, so I continued on my path um, and I became a behavior specialist. I was fortunate enough to find a position as a behavior specialist within a school that had their own in-house behavior specialist. Um, so I was no longer working for community agencies, and I was working with the same students in the school every day, which was a really incredible experience and I was there for, I guess, maybe two and a half or so years before I eventually found a job in a school as a school counselor at a high school in the area.
0: So now, Michelle, talk to us about where you were you know, chronologically during this journey. So it sounds like you were first serving the special needs community in um, in a Um, uh, community-based setting, and then you moved over to serving the special needs community in the school um, environment.
2: Yeah, I, well, when I was, before I was employed strictly by a school, I was, I would go into schools and work with students, but I was, an employee of a more community based organization. But um, students need transfers of skills both at home in the community and in the school. So I was in homes with families. I would be in the community if a, a student participated in sports, went to a day camp, anything of that nature, and also at school to help with peers and to transfer skills to their teachers. That would that was That continued after earning my master's degree for, um, I would say, about a year, but I was doing that as a mobile therapist and therapeutic staff support throughout the the entire time that I earned my master's degree. I did go full time to earn my master's, so um, that was only for, um, I guess, a little over two years. Then I was working as a behavior specialist for about a year before being hired by a school as their in-house behavior specialist where I was then for two and a half years. So all of that took me to about, I guess, five years post um, earning my, well, five years after earning my bachelor's degree with a buffer in between of a couple of years that I spent working doing things in corporate America before officially going back to get my master's.
0: So you you have this childhood dream of becoming an educator, and you've now gone through um, a couple of, I guess, turns where you ultimately become a behavior specialist, and now you finally have your dream job as a school counselor. Yes,
2: that is exactly how it went.
0: <laughs> so tell me how your symptoms, which you now know to be your Lyme disease symptoms, were interfering with you on your path to your dream job?
2: Um, You know, it's funny to think of it from that perspective because even though I have been on this journey, if you will, for quite some time now, I don't think I've ever truly spent time reflecting on how it interrupted that path to the job that I had always wanted. Um, but in looking back, I struggled all the time. Um, my family felt like I had just chosen some career where I was facing an uphill battle. And there are any number of reasons that we attributed to that, but really they were superficial. Um, but I struggled. It was, it was very difficult for me to get into a job, to keep a job, to be consistent, Um, and I was always kind of looking for the next thing that I could do thinking, you know, maybe that just wasn't, that spot wasn't the right fit for me. Um, and then moving on to another place, but ultimately would go through the same exact experiences. And, and looking back, I attribute a lot of that to what I was probably suffering from due to Lyme. Um, a lot of that came from like inconsistent. Attendance, I had to call out, stay home often, or reschedule appointments, um, whether that be because I just was feeling generally unwell, I was exhausted, I, um, I needed more time to complete reports. I, there were so many things that I was constantly battling that really didn't line up to um, the level of the education I achieved, my general overall IQ, as silly as that may sound. Um, school is something that's always been easy for me, like being a student myself. I'm not the kind of person that had to like really study a lot. I kind of remember things right away. And um, all of a sudden it was like everything was so difficult. It, it was such an effort to do the simplest things. And I think that I felt frustrated, so I also began procrastinating doing things because I knew that it was going to be just that much more, it was going to be so difficult to get done, even though I didn't know why. Um, And it it made me lose some of my passion and interest in what I was doing, which then also made it harder to really kind of push through and even focus on asking, well, what is wrong? Why is this happening? You know, I just was so frustrated with constantly feeling as though I was I was battling doing something that had come to me very easily and naturally at one point in time, something that I loved and was really driven to do, achieve, to help all within the realm of educating and helping students with special needs. Like It just became this tiresome, arduous task that I had no interest in doing. And I'm sure that that came through at times. But so much of it was just because I was literally tired and exhausted and getting up and doing anything felt like an arduous task.
0: So, Michelle, let's unbox that. When did you first begin to show the symptoms of what you now know to be your Lyme disease?
2: Um, All of that really started while I was working in the first school that I was in not not within the first year I was there but around the second year I was feeling sick all the time and now you, when I Michelle, say sick, you said sick I mean were, yeah go ahead.
0: you said you were feeling fatigue can you describe how yeah. the fatigue began to impact your um your experience in this uh school setting
2: so I, I, like I said, I was describing it as feeling sick, because at first, um, I just, I felt unwell, you know, like, if you're just having one of those days where you'd say, Oh, I think I'm just fighting off something I feel like maybe I'm getting a cold. So, You know, I felt kind of tired, worn down, even if I had gotten sleep, I felt as though I needed more sleep, you feel a little achy, kind of how somebody might say they feel if they've had the flu without ever really having the flu. Um, And I, all the time I felt like I just wanted a chance to just lay down and that if I could just lay down then I would have enough energy to get done whatever else I needed to do that day Um, I would feel very quickly um, exhausted doing something like if I was working with students in a group or we're going to go outside to do an activity I planned or I had to even finish reading a report or writing a report I would get through, I would say, maybe the first 20% of it and feel as though I had just spent forever and a day trying to complete it. So putting forth a small amount of energy to just initiate a task would end up feeling as though I had been doing the task all day long. And it was that feeling of exhaustion coupled with just feeling like this general unwellness that I was describing. That is what I personally describe as my fatigue.
0: So let's focus on this fatigue a little bit more. How is this fatigue Mm -hmm. different than when you were tired at any other time in your life? I'm sure there were times as, um, (laughs) you know, as a student at Penn State, which is again, one of the America's top colleges, you were pushed hard and you were tired. How could -hmm. you compare the experiences when you were sort of burning the candle at both ends as a college student? How is that different than the fatigue you are feeling now in your professional life?
2: Um, It's actually very simple to explain the difference. The tiredness I might have felt doing anything in my life prior to that. I could take a nap and I would be refreshed and be able to go on with what I was doing or grab a cup of coffee and I'd be re-energized or I could get some fresh air sometimes and it was just that I needed to get up and you know get a, a dose of vitamin D and some fresh air and change my setting and I would feel better and keep going. The feeling that you have if you've been sitting at your desk working at a computer and you just need to like get up and stretch your legs and it helps you feel better, those things did, did not apply. None of that would change how tired I felt. I could go home and sleep eight hours and I'd wake up feeling exactly how I felt when I went to sleep. Not so <laughs> there's, I mean, there's a big difference in that feeling. I mean, it's pervasive. It does not go away and there really isn't anything that changes it.
0: So this fatigue, you're feeling was unlike anything you had ever felt before you were now sick from Lyme disease.
2: In retrospect. Yes. At the time I would not, I did not see it that way. At the time, I was just trying to get through every day or every task, as it may be, and just start over again the next day. So I did not have the hindsight to see that it was something that I was struggling with every day. I just, I blamed um, taking on too many things at once, not managing my time right, maybe, you know, I needed a healthier diet or I needed to get to bed earlier. I I mean, I can't, I went through the list of all the things that you do to try to be on better track, to have more energy, to be able to wake up earlier. And I tried every single thing I could really blaming myself that I just wasn't doing something right, but not that it was this fatigue that I was never going to be able to get rid of.
0: Now Michelle, you said you were also having this feeling of being unwell. How would you distinguish mm-hmm. this feeling of being unwell from the fatigue you were feeling?
2: I would say that the feel, the general feeling of unwellness that I experienced from the fatigue, it was. Let me. I do have to say this. I have always kind of been prone to getting sick easier than most people around me, whether that be the common cold um, a stomach bug. I mean, you walk by me and sneeze and my family jokes, I'm going to have the flu. So that is something that I personally have experienced my entire life, but the way that things kind of morphed when I was feeling this fatigue and feeling unwell really was more than just getting sick, like something identifiable like, whether it be that, you know, you can go take some over-the-counter cough medicine or maybe go to the doctor and they give you, you know, some type of antibiotics or whatever and and you get better. It was, if I were sitting in front of my doctor and I'm like, I don't feel well, and he were to say, well, well, what's wrong? Aside from being really tired all the time, um, sometimes it was all about Aches and pains in my body, and he's like, "So you're achy, you know, like the flu?" No, I mean, no, it's not that, but yeah, I have these aches and pains. Um, I'll have headaches, and you know, whether because of seasonal allergies, whatever that it was, well, you, I have a sinus issue, and that's creating a headache, um, or if I just felt like I really. I used to, I, I remember, I used to say that I felt like I had weakness in my muscles or whatever. And I, I learned that it's not, it's not actually weakness, it's fatigue, it has nothing to do with the muscles. Um, but like, I felt like I couldn't complete regular physical tasks. They were just, they, it was hard. A lot of headaches, um, which would contribute to stomach issues because I was trying to work through these headaches on computers or whatever else. Um, the aches and pains were then and still are now something that um, I am constantly trying to address. So none of those things really fell under the category of, you know, getting sick with a cold or something like that. But those were the symptoms that I was constantly experiencing.
0: So, Michelle, you indicated that these developing symptoms were having an impact on your ability to um, complete tasks. It was causing you to have difficulty with things that you had found to be easy um, during your educational experience. And can you just sort of give us, you know, give us a summary of how your Lyme disease ultimately impacted your ability to, um, I guess, enjoy the successes that you had achieved in ultimately becoming a, uh, a school counselor.
2: Well, I guess the the fatigue and being tired when you're trying to have something, do something you enjoy um, or enjoy something you're doing rather, (laughs) it is certainly going to be there as one of the top things to be uh, preventative from that. But aside from the fatigue, which we've talked about, I would say that there were a lot of things on the list of um, barriers I had to truly appreciating what I had achieved and just enjoying my job in general. Um, Some of those for me that stand out the most were being able to complete tasks. And whether a task is easy or hard really became irrelevant. It was even getting, it was just getting through a list of tasks I had in the day. So when you go to work, you have, whether it be two things or 10 things that you plan to accomplish that day, that is the type of list I'm talking about. And it didn't matter if there were two or 10 things on my list, it was unlikely I was getting through all two or all 10. I would be stuck trying to work through one thing that I had to accomplish. And when I say stuck working through something I needed to accomplish, it would be focusing on it. I would have to go back and kind of start over almost as if I had been daydreaming while I was trying to accomplish it. Like I would be lost somewhere in the middle and go back and have to start over. It was a a challenge to focus and concentrate on um, small details of things. So, you know, if somebody popped by, I knew generally overall what I was doing, I wasn't completely like incoherent or anything. Like I, I'm working on this report and this report pertains to this student and it is because of this evaluation that I'm doing this, for example. But actually getting through each step of writing that or looking back over notes to put all of my thoughts together, um, formulating the sentences that I was trying to write in a way that I felt truly described what I needed or that um, were concise or that contained the necessary details, all of that was a strain for me and therefore took it from taking me a couple hours to 10 hours. It, I mean, everything was just magnified like by five. I, I felt as though I could not just get through a one task because within every task there are other little steps that you have to take and focusing on each one was just impossible. Um, So that for me was one of the biggest barriers because it was a huge source of frustration and also it just made it really hard for me to accomplish all the other tasks that I may have had in a given day. Um, I also really struggled with being able to offer myself like for meetings that existed before school, during lunch, after school, and the reason that I had trouble, or even just like, you know, activities where kids would come to me and say, Hey, we really need a sponsor or um, a faculty member to run this group that we want to have after school. And I, I wanted to say yes all the time. Um, But It was just impossible. I would commit to it and couldn't follow through because I literally would either be asleep in my car at lunchtime or immediately go home at the end of the school day. And if I ate, great. But really, all I wanted to do was get in bed and go to sleep until I had to get up for school the next day. So, So so just there wasn't much i could do
0: <laughs> yeah let let's let let's talk about the you know sort of the final piece of this from a professional standpoint because I do want to explore mm-hmm. uh some social issues with you in a minute um sure did um Did you ultimately lose the ability to um keep this dream job uh as a result of your illness?
2: Yes, and I did not know at the time that I was sick, which almost feels crazy. But um, I attributed it to a history of not feeling well, um, get like how I mentioned I used to get sick all the time when I was young. I would blame it on that. Um, again, the, the things I mentioned about me blaming, like, you know, maybe I needed to get to bed earlier, or maybe I needed to eat better. I, all these things, I blamed all of the trouble that I had getting through my workday on things I was doing. Um, without realizing that something else had occurred, which was getting Lyme disease. And I had reached out to a supervisor and had a meeting set with my supervisor to say that I needed help. I wasn't getting through all the work I needed to get through. And when I went to that meeting to, in my mind, talk about a plan of how to, um, Navigate through what I needed to accomplish and had not done so successfully. They they let me go, and that was my last day as a school counselor.
0: I'm sorry, Michelle. Can you talk to us about how your developing symptoms and your fatigue were impacting you personally? Meaning, um, what was happening in your social life? And how was the development of your symptoms impacting your social life?
2: Well, I was over the course of this time, my late twenties to early thirties and single, um, which had nothing to do with being sick. (laughs) Um, but because I was single, I went out with my friends a lot on the weekends. We always had different plans that we made, um, Seasonally fun things, or just your typical Friday happy hour, or you know, going to a concert—anything that people do to have a good time out and about together—I would say um, was the run of the mill for me from the time school ended on Friday until Sunday, and with the occasional happy hour here and there in between, um, and when this like period of my life started i my friends were all still doing these things and inviting me so i tried to go but i would say the whole year leading up to my like last day as a school counselor i rarely was able to accept an invitation or to go out with them or go anywhere i I remember trying, thinking, oh, my gosh, planning in my head, well, where can I get sleep so that I could go do this with my friends as well as be at school on time and do my job? And I just couldn't, like, I couldn't fit it all in. So I certainly talked to my friends and um, made my best emotional effort to stay involved, but I, I really couldn't. I wasn't as present. And when you're not able to be present and engaged with your friends, obviously those relationships, um, they kind of dissipate a little bit. It doesn't mean that all the friendships were gone, but you know, you don't necessarily know all the things that are going on anymore. Um, And that's not just like event things that are going on, but emotional things that are going on with your friends. Like I didn't even have the emotional energy to necessarily make sure I was investing back in them the way that they had invested in me. So it put a strain on friendships as much as it did on just participating in social activities.
0: So Michelle, did any of your friends either complain to you about not holding up your end of the relationship or even criticize you for um, not being the friend that you were supposed to be?
2: My friends are a pretty amazing group of people, especially my close friends. So while some of the outliers, in in terms of my direct relationship with those people, some of those kind of fell to the wayside, but we were more social friends than we were, you know, true friends who talked all the time. And so if I focus on the group of people that were my closest friends, there were still strains and challenges within those relationships, but the biggest strain and challenge that came within those relationships and ones that I, and challenges that I have spoken with to my friends about um, really came later because I got progressively more sick after I stopped working as a school counselor. and. It was at that point that my friendships suffered a lot more than they had even up to the point that I was no longer working as a counselor in a school. So when you say so your friends it depends on when you mean. Like, so my, yeah, my so... job suffered enough that I couldn't work anymore. My friendships and my social life had started to change, but my friends were still there and present when that happened. Things changed later for me socially and in what I consider to be a more significant way.
0: Okay. So talk to us about that. So how, how did, how did things continue to decline for you socially after you lost your job?
2: So after I lost my job, there is certainly the financial aspect there, which money affords you the ability to go do all the things that your friends are doing. Um, So I became, I was limited in resources alone, but, the additional impact there for me was i still didn't know i had Lyme disease so i was still sick and it was probably it was 2 weeks after my last day working in a school that i pretty much had like a collapse at home and my mom and i were at the er to figure out what was what was wrong, why was I feeling so ill, and they ran every test, they looked at everything they could, and I guess they didn't even tell us at that time, they decided to add a Lyme titer in there. Um, they didn't tell me I had Lyme until after I was I had left the hospital, and that I needed to be on medication right away, and so I started the process of treatment. While I was taking medication and trying to figure out what the next step was going to be for my life. um, I was becoming more ill, even though I was going through treatment. Some of it, I think, was from the medications I was taking. Um, And it made it harder for me to even keep up at the level I had with my friends. I went through a few different rounds of treatment and my stomach just really had a hard time handling all of the medication. So um, my doctor pulled back on the medicine and changed it to something that should be milder. It was okay, but I still was having trouble and eventually they stopped treating me altogether. And, um, and this was about, I would say six months, After my the diagnosis, and then it would be around eight or nine months, I guess. Sometimes I have these numbers a little wrong. Um, But it was after they had stopped treating me, Um, I I suffered from a grand mal seizure in the middle of the night in my mom's home, so she, she found me on the floor of the bathroom, and the only reason that she found me was because I was unconscious on the floor like the full flapping like what you would see in a movie type of thing supposedly according to her Um, but my arms and legs were were hitting the bathroom door so it kept kind of slamming open and closed and she got out of bed to see what the noise was and found me after that point um, I also couldn't drive as you're not allowed to drive in the state of Pennsylvania once you have a documented seizure. And I think that it's for six months, you're not allowed to drive. Um, I wasn't cleared by my doctors until almost 10 months total, I think. Michelle, um,
1: sorry to interrupt, Michelle, yeah. but before we go forward, I want yeah. to back up a bit. So yeah. when you got diagnosed, you were in the ER because you, you had an episode, you collapsed and your mother took you to the ER and they yep. ran a line titer. You didn't even know it. They then tell you, right. they call you after the vaccine that you have Lyme disease. So who mm-hmm. do you then treat with? Do you go back to the ER and you go back to the hospital? Do you go to your primary care physician? Who treated you with the initial course of antibiotics?
2: Um, it was my primary care physician. They The emergency room doctors called me in medication to my pharmacy, um, the pharmacy of my choice. And I got my first round of medication there and told me that I needed to follow up with my doctor, my general my general practitioner. Fortunately for me, my primary care physician, his office was actually attached to the hospital, although they're not the same, but it was very, very simple for that information to get from the ER to my doctor as they were familiar with each other. So they passed it along with my permission. He knew that I was being started on this initial course of antibiotics and that I would be coming in for a follow-up with him for next steps.
1: So talk to us about that visit with your primary care physician for your next step. So now you, you got your antibiotics. Did you start taking the antibiotics before you visited your doctor?
2: Yes.
1: And do I you, Nicole, took them, I, what, what type of yeah. antibiotics they were?
2: It was doxycycline.
1: Okay. So did you, did you start to feel worse? Did you start to feel better? What was your initial reaction to the doxycycline when you started taking it?
2: I didn't feel better, um, and doxycycline is very difficult on the body for most for many people. Um, it is certainly for me, and so I didn't have much of an appetite. I was more tired, and I just was trying to get through taking the medication without feeling nauseous. And, um, so I, had, did the, I basically went through that feeling like sick to my stomach almost every day and being exhausted more, even more so, but like falling asleep at any time, um, for three months.
1: So it sounds like you developed new it, symptoms, which were side effects of the doxycycline when you started yep. and you really didn't see any major improvements. So Based on that, when you saw your primary care physician in the beginning, what was his direction, just be in it for the long haul because you're not going to feel better right away? What was his response to you about your reaction to the doxycycline?
2: He did tell me that, um, that it was going to take a little while. I wouldn't necessarily feel better right away. Um, and, and I have to admit that I did not... Complain about my new symptoms to him initially. I did not go in there and say, This is making me feel sick. I kn- knew that these were symptoms of do- doxycycline and I wanted to feel better. So I figured, Well, I endure this to get to the other side of, of all of it.
1: And Michelle, um, I have to ask, I'm was. sorry to inter- interrupt real quick, but I just no, want to, okay. I, I, I'm just thinking yeah. of all these questions as you're speaking, because sure. you're doing a great job telling your story. But I just want to th- want to ask you about your primary care physician. So before yes. you got diagnosed, was what kind of doctors were you seeing? Did, which, what was your primary care physician saying to you before the hospital diagnosed you with Lyme? What was he trying to um, diagnose you with? And what routes was he going to figure out what was going on with your health?
2: Well, I had been in to see him a lot and he had, he was my doctor for nearly 20 years. So he knew me and my family well, um, from medical perspective. And I was in there with pain all the time and fatigue, but he would ask me if I was sleeping well, um, which I would say no, because I was in pain a lot. So that interrupted my sleep. So he focused a lot on that I was experiencing pain um, and trying to help me with that. And I had been in a car accident at one point in time in my life. (laughs) Um, And he felt that the pain, because a lot of it was in my neck and back, was a direct result of this car accident, whether it had been from overtime or whatever else. So before, I did unfortunately get to another one. So he, he was very, he felt very certain that this was all injury related.
1: So before your Lyme diagnosis, your primary care doctor and any other doctors you may have been seeing, were, we're solely focusing on pain management as a result of your first car accident and then your second car accident with your back and neck pain.
2: Yes.
1: And now when you went back to so now, we're going to fast forward again to where you were in your, in your <laughs> journey. You're with yeah. your primary care physician and you're on the doxy. You're not really revealing too much to your primary care physician about your additional symptoms and side effects of doxy because you just want to knock this out of you. So how long did your primary care physician keep you on the doxycycline for?
2: In total, I was on it for three months. Um, I would say that after two months, is probably about the time that I started to express that I wasn't feeling well because of it, these additional symptoms. Um, And some of that though was prompted by him because I started to drop weight and I wasn't very big to begin with. Like, so for, for point of reference, I probably weighed like around 118. Um, By the time I stopped, by the time I was taken off all medication, I was down to one Oh three.
1: But Michelle, did you ever feel any better at all from any of your symptoms from those three months of doxycycline? Uh,
2: uh, No, not that, not that stand out, but I, but again, I had all these, I had additional symptoms (laughs) and I was no longer working. So I didn't have the same point of reference. Like I wasn't trying to get through tasks in the day, the same, Um, My focus had shifted to getting through this medication. And I would say that even well after stopping all medication, I was still there was still this pain and fatigue and chronic headaches that existed. So there really wasn't a point in time that I felt relief, um, but my life was so different. Too. So I wasn't doing the same things anymore.
1: And after the three months of cycling, you re- have, have a
2: direct comparison, do you know what I mean? Like, understood. Cognitively focused, it was all totally different.
1: But, but generally speaking, your symptoms. If, if at all, really didn't improve much, if they were at all, because you didn't have a good point of reference, but it wasn't a drastic improvement or a noticeable improvement from your standpoint. But when you, when you decided to go off the doxy, did you go on any other antibiotics or medicine before you know, sort of pivoting off and, and deciding to re-strategize and go off the medication altogether?
2: Yes. Yeah, so because of feeling so sick and having the challenges I was, I went from doxycycline to two months of amoxicillin.
1: And on the amoxicillin, same thing. Did you have any any positive improvement in symptoms from the amoxicillin?
2: Well, it wasn't nauseous anymore.
1: <laughs> but that was so a side effect of the doxy, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
2: yeah. Um, so I actually, I would say though, and I, and I do think it's important for people to really understand that medications you may take for anything, Lyme, whatever, um, can make you feel not well. Um, that it's important to communicate that. And that although you may have to endure it, your doctors should know that you're not feeling well, because I went from that to amoxicillin and, and had a false list at first, like this false sense of feeling better because I was no longer experiencing the symptoms of the doxycycline.
1: But your Lyme symptoms were not better. It was just the side effects of the doxy that correct. They were not
2: better, but I felt, I felt so much better not being on the doxycycline that it gave me this false sense of I was doing better in general do you, know, how, do you know how what I'm long
1: saying? I do and, and how long were you on the amoxicillin for after the three months of doxycycline
2: two which was enough time for them to realize that it I wasn't actually doing better it took it like a, you know a few weeks of being on the amoxicillin for me to realize that this false sense of I was doing better wasn't actually true um I was just feeling relief from not being on doxy but I was still in pain and having headaches and fatigue and um the things that the the things that I was struggling with a lot prior to going on doxycycline were still there like I just said so it took my doctor going on another month of that before they finally decided to call it quits
1: So, Michelle, talk to us, though, about generally speaking, insurance will cover 21 days approximately of doxycycline for Lyme disease. Was your three months of doxy and then your two months of amoxicillin covered by insurance? Or did you have to pay out of pocket for these prescriptions issued by your primary care physician?
2: They would have been out of pocket. I, my personal experience, however, was different than the norm. Um, as I mentioned, my doctor had been my doctor for nearly two decades and he had seen me go in and out of work and struggle with attendance of at work. Um, I, and he had kind of helped me before get through medical care without insurance. And when this happened, he felt very much that he wanted to be able to help me. So he would see me and would not have me would not pay, would not have me pay anything for my visits. Um, and then when it came to the medication, my family had to pay out of pocket, but um, he he did his best to at times give me samples of things instead of making me have to pay for a full prescription at the pharmacy. And again, he lifted the, any cost associated with me actually being in office. So. It would have been, it would have, there's no way that I could have personally financially covered it. I was lucky to have some help from my mom, but really it was my doctor who made it possible for me to even have healthcare at that time.
1: So Michelle, now we're five months post-diagnosis, three months of doxy mm-hmm. didn't help, made you feel worse from the side effects. And now Mm -hmm. you're on amoxicillin, you start to feel better, but it's a false sense because you're feeling better from not having all these crazy side effects of the doxycycline. You realize your Lyme symptoms are not improving at all. And as you mentioned, you call it quits. So now you're five months Mm -hmm. in, your primary care physician basically says, we're going to stop treating. Do you just stop treating altogether? Or are you now going to a specialist to try to find an additional doctor to help you feel better?
2: No, I, well, I, I didn't have health insurance at all anymore. So I did not go see anybody else. He was the only person I could afford since he was free to see. Um, but he had shifted gears and felt that they had treated. He unless I could go see an infectious disease doctor, which he did want me to go do. He understood why I couldn't financially. Um, but he, the only thing he could do was look at the fact that they had given me five months of medication. I was still having these symptoms. He had previously hypothesized, if you will, that pain was related to car accidents and felt that what he may have, may have missed prior was that perhaps I have fibromyalgia is what he then landed on and tried to start treating me for that instead.
1: And Michelle, what, Which, what If anybody's unfamiliar
2: with fibro, there are a lot, a lot of parallel symptoms to Lyme disease.
1: And Michelle, what, what did your doctor do to start treating you for the fibromyalgia after the Lyme treatment failed and your doctor pivoted to treating the fibro? Diag- di- I'm sorry, when he pivoted yeah. to start treating um, the fibrodiagnosis.
2: I ran through a variety of different medications that are on the market to treat fibromyalgia, Um, Vibrids and balsa. feel like there's, oh, there's another one in there and it's not coming to my mind at the moment. Um, Darn it. But I, he started trying to, again, with medication, treat these symptoms I'm having, but this time to manage fibromyalgia.
1: Did any of those treatments that you tried help your symptoms and and your body pain and everything you had going on with your
2: health? Um, When I initially took the Cymbalta, which I was on the generic of that. um, I, I did, I did actually feel. um, I was just talking about this the other day with my mom. I felt a little bit better initially in terms of pain. Um, But that wore off after two weeks. So they increased the dose, which is apparently kind of a normal course of action that to get you have to get to a certain dosage that's appropriate for you. Um, but when they increased the medication, I had side effects that made me feel not too great, which were my stomach and um, I was feeling more tired. Um, and the pain was still there. It didn't, it didn't get better when the dosage increased. So that was when we started to go to the next medication, which I had horrible side effects from um, in terms of anxiety, depression. So I stopped that medication then after experiencing some pretty severe anxiety and depression on it.
1: Michelle, what, what um, was that second medication? Do you recall the name of it?
2: Yeah, Vibrid.
1: Vibrant. And did, you, did your other symptoms improve, your physical symptoms, did they improve, but your mental health symptoms worsened or nothing was helped at no, all with this
2: medication? No, I was on that one for such a short time because the, the, the mental health spike was almost, in, was almost immediate. So, so I have to, I have I, to wonder I, though, Michelle. I wasn't Michelle, on that for more than like a week. <laughs> so I have to wonder
1: that Cymbalta really is a, you know, they use it for a lot of things, but it does help with nerve mm-hmm. pain and muscle and bone pain. So do you think that maybe some of these medications that were being used for fibromyalgia were actually helping treat some of your Lyme symptoms and there's a, there's some sort of an overlap between Lyme and fibromyalgia?
2: Oh, absolutely. And I, for where I am today, which for where I am today, I very much believe that I suffer from chronic Lyme and that I do have fibromyalgia. So it goes back and forth and I have been trying to learn how to identify which part is from which at what time. Um, But I do believe much to what your question was asking is that the medication addresses some of these types of pain that you experience from Lyme and that the conflicting result that I had from Cymbalta was due to the fact that it was helping with Lyme but wasn't actually addressing like the the, ov- my overall need to recover <laughs> if that you know it does and, and,
1: sense. and we have seen from many podcast guests that Lyme disease will trigger other conditions that were triggered by Lyme like mast cell activation right. um interstitial cystitis uh, fibromyalgia as you noted um even even skin conditions we've seen Lyme trigger so do you believe that Lyme caused or triggered your fibromyalgia or do you believe that they are separate conditions that you would have you would have had it regardless
2: Um, somewhere in between, I believe that the Lyme triggered my fibro to the level that it exists now. I do think it was something that was kind of like dormant, something I may have eventually struggled with maybe as I got older. Um, but it certainly was exacerbated in my belief and my doctor's belief by this, this experience of my body going through Lyme. And fibro can be triggered by things like car accidents or other traumatic events. So it, it would not be far-fetched to think that your, your body going through something like Lyme disease would essentially be the catalyst to um, suffer from something like fibromyalgia.
1: So. Michelle, let's go back to your grand mal seizure that your mother, unfortunately, and you unfortunately had to go through and, and yeah. deal with that. So obviously you were without a car and a license for about a year, it sounds like, by the time you could get your license back and maybe even then you were weary to drive because of your, your symptoms still. But when you had mm-hmm. that seizure and you, know, you went to your doctors, potentially the hospital, what, what were the doctors saying was the cause of your grand mal seizure?
2: They said they didn't know. <laughs> They had no idea. Um, and I then started seeing neurologists at Penn and they, it was obvious to me that they were treating me initially, um, with at at the highest level, like perhaps I had developed epilepsy and they needed to control the seizures to make sure that my brain didn't suffer from repeat seizure, seizure activity. So they medicated me right away, kind of acting as if, and then would go from there to rule out what would happen next. Um, they did all of the different types of diagnostic testing, MRIs, CAT scans, looking at, you know, different type of neurological testing to see, was this in fact a seizure that was caused by adult onset epilepsy, or was it from something else? And they ultimately had me seeing specialists that believed it was likely due to Lyme disease. So I had spinal taps done to test spinal fluid to see if they could find Lyme in my brain. And when they did that testing, they, they definitely went in very confident that that was the answer that they were looking for but the test results didn't show Lyme in my brain. They continued to tell me, however, that even if Lyme had not been found within my brain, that the trauma that my body had gone under over the last year plus, um, but especially that last year um, leading up to the seizure, that it is very possible that my entire body felt that it needed a reset that it was not getting and that it just shut down on me altogether.
1: Um, and Michelle, that's not uncommon. We've had many guests who have had seizures from neurological and chronic Lyme disease. I myself had had seizures before my diagnosis that developed months, if close to a year before my diagnosis. So uh, I do believe that there probably is a connection between your Lyme disease and your seizures. Uh, and it sounds like your doctors did as well. So once mm-hmm. they did all this testing and everything sort of came back inconclusive did they treat you for the seizures with epilepsy medication what was the the outcome here to treat your seizures so you don't continue to have these grand mal seizures on a regular basis
2: Well that that is something that I that is something that I think is probably tricky for me personally they initially were treating me with Keppra which is broad spectrum anticonvulsant medication while they were Determining if I had epilepsy or not, they then they then changed it from Kepra to oh my goodness, I'm so sorry, I'm try- I it just went right out of my head. Um, also, something that never used to happen pre-seizure, I will say. Um, they did change the medication briefly, but eventually, my doctors decided that it wasn't seizure they felt pretty confident that even though it was related to Lyme, that since they didn't see Lyme in my brain, that I didn't need to be on an anticonvulsant anymore. Um, And took me off medication altogether and sent me on my way. (laughs) The doctor I was seeing actually went to a different hospital network um, and nobody really, did much to follow up and continue treating me after that. And because of that, I kind of just changed the way that I live my life because I don't, I don't know that I have an answer for me personally about how to make sure I never have a seizure again.
1: And chronologically, so, uh, Michelle, this is this was going on Overlapping a little bit, the whole fibro uh, discussion and yeah. the fibro treatment. It sounds like so. Yeah. Now your your seizure medication. You go off your seizure medication. Your seizures. Thank God, it sounds like you haven't had a seizure since. And now you're treating yeah. the fibro. Talk us through what happens from there. Are you still on fibro medications? You continue other medications, and and you know how your life and your journey continued from that point.
2: So there, is, there is one little piece of information that I think is important to fill in um, after just coincidentally, pretty close after my, the last medication I was on from my general practitioner to treat this, the new idea that it's fibromyalgia based or whatever. um, He retired and had been planning to do so for some time. Um, But that it was very close to when I had the seizure. So I obviously needed medical care because of the seizure the state essentially stepped in and um, put me on medical assistance. So I did have health care. that's how I was seeing the neurologists at Penn, um, but medical assistance is not actually widely accepted right where I live. So I was in Center City, Philadelphia to go to the, doc- the Penn doctors. Um, I did need to find a new general care, a new general practitioner and the only one in my area that I could get into see is the geriatric specialist who has a regular practice, probably his youngest patient. Um, and he really farmed, he's still my doctor on paper, I guess, but he really farms me out. He does not, he never treats me for anything if I call him with a, an issue. So I started seeing at the same time because of the seizure, um, I started seeing a rheumatologist to address fibromyalgia diagnosis. I was seeing a a psychiatrist who specializes in traumatic brain injury, which was required um, for me to have medical assistance because of the seizure. And I was continuing at that time to see the neurologists that were assessing any type of neurological condition related to the seizure and or Lyme. when my doctor, after my doctor retired and I had all these new doctors, the only, the treatment that I had from the neurologist, like I said, you know, that was kind of taking care of things for a little bit. Um, the psychiatrist I was seeing, once my neurologist took me off of anticonvulsants, he decided to treat me for um, the like anxiety, depression that I was experiencing, and insomnia that I had, clinical insomnia that I had developed at that point, um, and was also experiencing leading up to the seizure. And he put me on Lamictal, which is another anticonvulsant, but it also is used to treat different types of depression. Um, and he hoped it would also help with my sleep. So I Was put on Lamictal. Lamictal has a well-known side effect that can be extremely dangerous and life-threatening, and um, I think it's called St. John's syndrome. You develop this rash, and people end up hospitalized with it, and there is a pretty high mortality rate if you happen to have this reaction. So um, they titrate you on very slowly and. I got. I actually did feel I had some symptom relief, not from the pain, but some other things I was experiencing when I started the Lamictal. But I never made it to the full dose because I started to develop the rash, so I had to stop taking it immediately. And then he did not end up putting me on anything else. Um, and wanted to figure out what what else might be a good idea. But I was also being then. Put on medications for fibromyalgia and it became difficult to make to find medications that wouldn't necessarily cause me increased symptoms and side effects so to this so now the medications that i take are only for fibromyalgia um, i do have some other health conditions i have um, i have a autoimmune disorder or thyroid condition so i have to take medication for that daily um, but other than that, the medication, the primary medication I take to treat what I experience in terms of pain, fatigue, and all of that is is more fibromyalgia based. But it's just it's nerve pain medication. It's so I take gabapentin. Um, that's supposed to also help with the insomnia and the pain. Um, it is not a medication that I happen to be a big fan of, but they have not figured something different
1: to give me. So Michelle, I just do want to point out that we've had many guests who have developed autoimmune conditions and thyroid conditions as a result of their chronic Lyme disease. And we've had many Lyme guests that have benefited from gabapentin as well. So do you think that you're Mm -hmm. experiencing relief from gabapentin because Lyme is still part of the underlying picture that's making you sick in addition to the fibro still to this day?
2: Um, I would say that the medication 100% makes it easier for me to sleep. And some of my insomnia, I believe it was a result of pain that I experienced. Like if you can't lay down and get comfortable, how are you ever going to go to sleep? Um, So it does, so it, it alleviates some pain and helps me sleep and your body needs sleep to function, period. So it does that. Um, unfortunately for me, I experienced m- increased brain fog and am tired and not like fatigue tired, but like, you know, drugged tired, um, when I wake up from taking it. So, like I said, I, there are things that it is doing that, that helps. Um, but overall I would say, I don't know if the help outweighs the fact that then it makes it harder for me to still focus, function, and get through at least the initial part of my day.
1: Michelle, there are clearly a lot of layers to your your healing journey and your health right now. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, autoimmune, thyroid, you've had seizures, you've had chronic Lyme disease, you've had full body pain, you've had car accidents. But I guess the question Mm -hmm. I'm wondering is, do you believe that chronic Lyme is still a contributing factor to your current symptoms that you're experiencing today?
2: Um, I would say with 100% certainty, it is the the initiating event for so much of what I experienced today. I would say that there are bouts of time I go through that I think are related to like a a Lyme flare-up. It's something that it feels somewhat different and more significant in terms of fatigue and exhaustion and my ability to concentrate than what I experienced from, from what I, what I'll say is my fibro diagnosis. So fibro also causes pain and concentration issues and fatigue. But when, when I think I'm having like a Lyme flare up, it's just so much more significant. So I think that it still impacts me. I still get migraines that I take medication for. um, And I get those weekly. Um, And I think the migraines 100% are related to Lyme. I never had them before. (laughs) And the only time that I ever had relief from them was on, um, was when I was on anticonvulsants, which I'm not on. So now I experience the migraines again, but it is still, it still plays a role in, my life monthly, bi-monthly, um, if not more, but the pain and stuff that I experience, I think exists even if my Lyme has improved some, but when it flip, when the Lyme flares up, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's unavoidable and it's pretty clear to me when it's there. So, um, I don't think that it, is something that I've like healed from physically all the way, although I have adopted different lifestyle changes to address things that, that do help. Um, I was recently told, however, by a, a disability lawyer, because I still don't have a full-time job, I, it's impossible for me to have one, um, that there is no such thing as chronic Lyme. I'm never gonna get help for that and that I would, she essentially told me that I would have to lie and say that my migraines are daily if I were ever to want to get help. So, so obviously
1: <laughs> we, could, I, we here at Tickwood completely disagree that chronic Lyme is real. Right. Um, and obviously you right. do as well, but unfortunately to yeah. get the assistance you need to heal and continue to treat your health, you have to lie to get proper treatment, which is just ridiculous.
2: It is and it makes me very sad, not just for myself, but because like you said, I very much believe that chronic Lyme exists. I know when it hits me, um, which means it's always just there and can pop up at any time. You know, it could be a special something, you know, a holiday time, or it could be just a run into the middle of the week and I have no say when it shows up, but there's no denying that it happens. And the fact that there are so many people who are trying to get through their lives and could be parents or you know, may not have situations like mine where they have supportive family. I have no idea how somebody like that is supposed to manage their life if this belief that chronic Lyme doesn't exist is out there.
1: So Michelle, give us an assessment of, you've made some improvements with your health. Give us an idea mm-hmm. of how you're feeling today and some things that you can do today that you couldn't have done a few years ago when you got diagnosed?
2: Um, The fact that I can even have this entire conversation with you is an improvement from when I was diagnosed. And I attribute that in some ways to lifestyle change. Um, I give myself a lot more time to rest and assess when I'm gonna use my energy. Like I have to store it up so that I have it for times that I need it most. I can't just run on a normal day like we're kind of expected to, to function at work and within our families. So having to pick and choose, but doing so wisely makes a big difference in being able to put forth energy where I want it and that is not something I would have been able to do at all and when I do choose to do things now it's different than it was before and I contribute I attribute some of that to just changing my lifestyle as well like previously when I talked about not being able to get through tasks in my day and things like that I can now say that if I, there's something I want to do, there's a task I want to complete, I can set that as what I want to do for that day and I can make it through the task. And I'm not necessarily completely unfocused or challenged and concentrating, <clears throat> but I wouldn't necessarily be able to pile on that I have 10 tasks to do in a day, but I can at least get through the one. And that is in part because I've stored up the energy to do it. So there were, especially after the seizure, there were times that like, if the one task I needed to complete was a three-step process, I would have to go back and read each step over and over again after, um, after completing the step prior, because I had almost no short-term memory whatsoever. So that has improved significantly. (laughs) I'm an avid cooker. I love to cook. Um, That was almost impossible because I couldn't get past from one part of the directions to the next. Um, I recently was cooking for myself. And when I was done, I was so excited because I had only looked at the directions one time um, in the middle of cooking. So that's something that has improved. And I know that doing something as simple as cooking for yourself and not being able to is, well, for me, it was emotionally draining um, and disappointing. And I felt very depressed um, and kind of helpless. So knowing that there are ways that I can change going about my day that help me be able to do tasks like that, that make me feel independent and successful um, is a huge mood lifter. And it's something that has helped me redefine what independence looks like for me post seizure living with Lyme and I would I would be remiss not to say that if somebody is ever in this position that you're you don't have to not do things forever you don't have to feel like you can never take care of yourself again you just have to approach it in a different way which can be hard but it's possible.
0: So Michelle, let's talk about the positive transformation that's come to you and to your life as a result of your Lyme disease. And I know it has been a difficult journey, but it hasn't been all bad. Can you talk to us about your your social media marketing and the beautiful Instagram that you have created?
2: Well, to to be able to appropriately describe describe that and the benefits that that has brought to my life. um, I would have to start by saying that one of the positive things that came out of my experience with Lyme disease um, is that when we started this podcast today and chatting, I said that through all of this, I had been single, Um, but I'm no longer single. And The reason I'm no longer single is because there was a day um, that I was attempting to just be part of my social circle in the best way that I was able. Um, It was after my seizure. Um, It was a very unusual occurrence for me at that time, but I really wanted to be able to be with friends and um, on that day I met my significant other and had I met him who I was prior to my seizure before being treated for Lyme before knowing I had Lyme I believe I would have been a very different person on that day Um, going through this experience is extremely humbling And while I don't think that I was ever a boastful or overly self-confident or cocky person whatsoever, I 100% put my educational accomplishments, what I was doing with my career, the big social circle that I had, I put that first when I met people. That was what I presented to the world. I didn't necessarily show people everything about who I was inside, something that people would connect to. It was, it was everything external. And having all of that literally taken away, my job completely taken away, my education at that point in my mind didn't even matter. Um, I didn't have independence and self-confidence. I was just somebody who wanted to connect to other people because I wasn't doing that anymore. And I met him that day and that's the person that he fell in love with. And if, if I hadn't been sick, I don't know if he would have. So, um, he is my partner. And when he spent enough time with me trying to watch me go through my recovery, but seeing that I was still isolated, um, from my friends, um, from being able to go do things, he really encouraged me to find something that I was still passionate about something I still enjoyed and writing has always been a huge thing for me whether it be journaling or writing professionally whatever it was it was it was an outlet for me and I've always loved since the time I was a little girl clothing and makeup and all the 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 artistic outward expressions of ourselves (laughs) um and so I Sat down with him and we were talking, and this idea of me creating a blog happened. And it was really just for me to have a creative outlet that I was passionate about. Um, I haven't even brought that fully to life in the way that he and I first conceptualized, but I did immediately have an opportunity to start writing, to focus on things I love clothing, makeup, beauty, but all instead of the way it was before, the idea of it was that it's based on how my life is different now. So the type of products I choose are different now because I want to make sure that I'm doing what's healthiest for my body. Um, Getting dressed, doing my hair, all of that is still harder than it used to be. So finding things that fit, make me comfortable, um, that are much more affordable than they used to be since I don't have the income I once did. That all plays a huge role in the types of things that I focus on and write about, which have now also included some lifestyle things. And it's it created this place where I could focus on things that I love and am passionate about, but the, the great thing about it really isn't even a creative outlet, it's the connections I've been able to make to other people, whether it's because they also have gone through something similar in their own health and life, um, but also maybe just because they have a, they have similar styles to me and they like the same clothes I do. So whether it be something so superficial as like, we like the same type of clothing or um, because we live in the same area or something more personal because they've gone through a difficult time in their, their life, whether it be for, because of health or otherwise, the creative outlet that was just supposed to give me something to focus on instead has given me a place to create really meaningful relationships, friendships, and connections with other people.
0: So now, Michelle, I have one more um, question for you. Uh, you're doing so much through now your outreach through social media and in so many different ways. And and, and we thank you um, sincerely for all of the work that you're doing in that regard. Uh, and and of course, uh, that's what uh, allowed us to discover you. Uh, but I'm going to ask you one more question. And that is, if God forbid yeah. your significant other, who means so much to you now, um, came into your room after you finished this podcast and he had a tick biting him on his leg, what would you recommend that he would do so that he... Wouldn't I have to go through a terrible Lyme disease journey the way you have?
2: Admittedly, the thought of it brings tears to my eyes because I really would never want anybody to have to go through this. Like, Despite the fact that there is, there is beauty and positivity that has come from it, I would never want somebody to have to give up the life that they've worked so hard for to, to get to where I am right now. Um, so it makes me sad to think anybody I care about being put in that position, but I would be insistent upon him or anybody else seeing their doctor. And I know that that is not always easy to do, whether it's because a doctor doesn't think that a tick bite is something to be seen about immediately, or maybe because of their own um, lack of access to medical care. But it is pivotal to force your way in to see somebody and make sure that they know from day one that you are at risk for developing or for having contracted Lyme disease and developing the symptoms that then can come with it. And I know that it has been shown time and time again that when treated within the first 24 hours that it can make a difference. So I would make sure that that person sees a doctor and then after that point i think that the next thing that anybody and everybody in that position needs to do is to focus on the things they love to find what they are the things that bring them joy and passion and like just hold on to them because being able to remain positive when you're fighting a healthcare system or trying to get in to see doctors isn't always the easiest thing so making sure that you're really bringing your own joy into your life while you're going through that process will make such a difference in how you feel and your outlook and being successful and overcoming whatever is next for you after that moment.
0: Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Michelle Genzano. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Michelle Genzano and her tick disease journey, please visit our Instagram at the Snitch. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, we share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a tick by blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, please take a minute to leave us an honest review and rating on iTunes or on our website. As always, we thank you for listening.